This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome to the Mike Smith Show podcast. This is your one-stop shop for all the latest happenings in BC. From breaking news and developing stories to giving the big headlines a closer look, the Mike Smith Show is here to keep you dialed in and up to date. Let's begin. We start today with decriminalization of drug possession in British Columbia. This is now in effect in our province. 2.5 grams of heroin, cocaine, including crack cocaine, crystal meth, ecstasy and fentanyl. 2.5 grams, the legal possession limit now. Police will not charge drug users. They will not take away their drugs. All this comes after another deadly year of drug overdoses in B.C. The coroner this week reporting more than 2,000 drug overdose deaths last year. Okay, the debate on this really heating up now, especially in Ottawa. We've got a fantastic panel of MPs standing by to discuss. First, have a listen to this here now. This is federal conservative leader Pierre Polyev yesterday in Ottawa. The Trudeau NDP approach is on open display in Vancouver. It is a complete disaster. It is hell on earth. We're going to reverse that policy and we're going to reverse it. We're going to replace it with recovery and treatment. Okay, let's discuss now for you. We got both sides for you. Randeep Sarai on the line, Liberal MP, Surrey Centre. Very pleased to welcome him back. Randeep, thank you for coming on today. Always a pleasure, Mike. Thank you. Okay, also on the line is Layla Goodridge. Layla is the Conservative MP, Fort McMurray, Cold Lake. Layla Goodridge, thank you for coming on today. Thank you. Okay, I appreciate it a lot. Randip Sarai, let me go to you first. When you hear Pierre Polyev here saying he will, he will cancel this decriminalization program if he becomes Prime Minister, it's hell on earth in the downtown east side, in his opinion. What do you think of that? Well, first of all, I think it's appalling what he's calling hell on earth. Uh, this is a medical uh, crisis that we have. Uh, decriminalization just started this week, so you can't fall decriminalization as the cause of, of what's happening on the downtown east side or uh, the addiction crisis we have. If you look from 2014 to 2015, this fentanyl and uh, blaze crisis has started occurring then where there's a 50% rise year over year, and that hockey stick graph just kept growing higher and higher, and it, it's something we all have to address. Uh, the answer that he gave back was to bottle Alberta's approach, which was to double recovery homes. A great idea, nothing wrong with that, doubling that. But the Alberta government just fired the, the, the chief medical officer uh, for Alberta, uh, who was in charge of that program. In fact, she's been hired by British Columbia, Dr. Hinshaw. So uh, it's not an approach that he, his party or his uh, counterpart provincially actually even endorse or likes in that province. Uh, I, I think... Mm-hmm. Um, we need approach that's uh, recovery-based. We need approach that's uh, health-based. Uh, and that's why criminalizing people who are addicted to drugs is not the way to go. That obviously okay. hasn't worked as it was there in the past, and it won't work in the future. Conservative MP Leila Goodridge, your thoughts? Well, I think that that is a complete mischaracterization. And frankly, after eight years of the Trudeau government, We've seen a 300% increase in drug overdose deaths in British Columbia. And as you reported earlier, 
just this week, a report came out that there were 2,200 drug overdose deaths last year alone in British Columbia. The approach um, that is being taken by the British Columbia government has not been working and giving more access to drugs readily on the street is not going to solve a drug problem. We absolutely need to have recovery and treatment. And frankly, Alberta and their policy that they've put forward has has increased the number of space in treatment beds by double. It's decreased the number, the amount of time people have to wait. And we've also seen a decrease in the number of drug overdose deaths. I don't understand how that's somehow a bad thing. Um, and it's very much supported by the government of Alberta and leaders in Alberta. And I, I look forward to seeing that model continue. Randeep Sarai, what do you say to that? What I just heard from my counterpart has nothing to do with the federal government. Her criticism is of the B.C. government. And B.C. government is the one who asked for decriminalization and made the requests along with, I think, the police chiefs of all the cities uh, uh, in, in British Columbia. And I think it's a, it's a request from police chiefs across the country to decriminalize. So this is a, an answer to a request by police chiefs and particularly the province of British Columbia. They have asked for this. So there hasn't been any criminal code changes with respect to the enforcement uh, of, uh, of, of drugs or uh, possession in British Columbia under the uh, Liberal government. Uh, the crisis has been compounded because of the influx of, of, of hard drugs, drugs like fentanyl and others that have permeated, and people need help. Uh, people need uh, services for those. They need to be treated as, as medical patients. So it has nothing to do with that, and, and, and my opposition hasn't been able to even say one thing that the federal government has done that has caused this crisis. Let me, let me, Randy, let me the ask you this. Government go, go ahead, done. go ahead, Layla. I'm sorry, the federal government has done plenty to make this crisis substantially worse. And frankly speaking, making it so that people can carry 2.5 grams of fentanyl around with them through BC is absolutely wrong and is going to see people die. So we need to be helping our brothers, our sisters, our neighbors, our friends, and our fellow Canadians and help them get out of addiction and give them a path towards life and recovery and hope. And what this plan has been is done, what this federal government's exemption has is going to do without having any additional access to treatment and recovery is going to see more people, unfortunately, lose their lives to addiction. Hey, Randeep Sarai, let me play another clip here for you from the federal conservative leader, Pierre Polyev, who speaking to me on the show earlier this week. And he makes the argument that decriminalization of drug possession in Vancouver had effectively been happening already. The Vancouver Police Department had said years ago that they had stopped arresting people for possession of small amounts of drugs, and he said that the situation only got worse. So here's what he had to say, then I'll get your thoughts. Pierre Polyev. Hard drugs have largely been decriminalized in Vancouver now for five, six years. That's when the federal liberal government, the provincial NDP and the then NDP mayor basically told the cops, don't enforce the law. If you find some, someone with fentanyl, heroin, uh, or other hard drugs, just let them go. And what has happened? Well, take a, a, a walk down the east side. What do you say to him, Randy Sarai? 
Well, first of all, you've characterized it wrong. It's the Vancouver police and the provincial authorities that have said uh, to the Vancouver police authority not to press charges on anyone with personal possession of drugs. It's not a federal uh, mandated uh, position. It's not what the federal government said. And even the current decriminalization was at the request of the province and the Vancouver Police Department, amongst other police uh, departments. And every, quite frankly, any health professional, I, I represent the downtown Surrey, and we've had quite a bit of challenges is there as well but anyone working for the uh, for with the with those that are addicted have not said that criminalization is the answer have not said more penalties and sentences on users is the answer everyone has said more services more um, uh, safe consumption sites uh, uh, more assistance in recovery is what is needed so again none of these uh, items that either the leader of the opposition or his uh, member of parliament has said has anything to do with the federal government. The federal but, government is a partner that's there to help the provinces deliver and administer their health policies uh, in times like this. And in this case, the British Columbia government has particularly asked for us to decriminalize right. uh, personal possession. And I Lilith. don't see how that... Uh, criminalization of that has changed anything uh, or will change anything. So uh, it's something where the police can use their resources better to fight the dealers, the drug dealers, and those that enforce and pimp people, rather than being psychologists and healthcare workers for those and, and enforcing on those that have addictions and Layla Goodridge. needs. Layla Goodridge, go ahead. Well, what my colleague fails to accept is that there's only one level of government that has the power and authority to have a decriminalization of these illegal substances, and that is the federal government. And so it is actions being taken by this federal government that has created the problem we are in and is making it worse. They are effectively putting the cart before the horse and putting fuel on the fire. We've seen countless reports of diversion of these drugs getting into the hands of teenagers who are looking to go and have a party. We have seen countless issues in regards to the fact that there are just now more drugs available on the streets through British Columbia. This isn't making things safer. This is making things more dangerous. And if, if the government wants to put the blame on the British Columbia government and on every other level of government and fail to accept the fact that it's their leadership that could change this, and yet they are complicit in making these decisions, that's on him. But frankly, I am proud of the position my leader has taken, and I'm proud of the position the Conservative Party of Canada has taken that is focused on treatment and recovery and having a recovery-oriented system of care, because that is how we are going to get ourselves out of this. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at ArmorAll.com. ArmorAll, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. With standards of care in long-term care homes in Canada, are seniors being adequately cared for in these homes. This week in Ottawa, we saw some recommended standards of care rolled out. They include minimum hours of care for seniors. Recommendations also call for higher pay for workers in long-term care homes. The federal government under pressure to make these care standards mandatory across Canada. Have a listen to the NDP leader here, Jagmeet Singh, speaking in the House of Commons this week. Two years ago, the Canadian Armed Forces had to be called into long-term care homes. And what they saw in those homes were horrific conditions. Seniors left for hours and sold diapers and linens. Seniors crying out for food and water, left dehydrated and hungry. After seeing the report, the Prime Minister said he was sad and frustrated. But two years later, there's been no action. When will the Prime Minister legislate standards in long-term care to protect our seniors? Okay, NDP leader Jagmeet Singh there. Now, don't forget, he's got a governing deal here with Trudeau. Right. They've got that deal to prop up the Trudeau government here in minority parliament. And part of Jagmeet Singh's demands here are national standards for these care homes. So it's interesting to hear I'm putting public pressure on Trudeau to follow up on that. Trudeau was asked about mandatory standards for long term care homes this week. Here's what he said. We recognize the responsibility and the jurisdiction of provinces in these areas, but I think all Canadians, regardless of the order of government, uh, want seniors to have the best quality of care possible, and that's what we're going to continue to work on. All right, let's discuss now with my guest, Terry Lake, CEO of the BC Care Providers Association, rec- representing long-term care providers in the province, and I'm very pleased to welcome him back. Terry, thank you for coming on today. Good morning, Mike. Thanks for having me. Okay, thanks a lot for being here. This is such an important topic here, and for, for people who have loved ones in long-term care or they're trying to find long-term care for, for family, you know, this is so important, the standards of care. Can you tell me about, what is the situation in British Columbia? Are there mandatory standards here in B.C.? There are. Uh, we are at a, a mandatory 3.36 hours of care per day. Uh, so, you know, below what is not actually part of the standards it's it's kind of uh nuanced it says that evidence indicates a a minimum of 4.1 hours of care is needed but it doesn't make it part of the standard and that was based on a study 20 years ago in california so of course the the amount of care each person needs will vary depending on their needs Uh, but here we have a minimum of 3.36 ontario is going to four uh, in uh, uh, 2024 and Certainly, that's a strong debate. In fact, we're going to be debating that February 15th uh, in uh, the Terminal City Club as part of our Care to Chat series. Uh, um, Linda Steele will be moderating that. We'll have experts talking about what really is the minimum hours of care that that uh, those in long-term care actually need. So invite any uh, care providers to uh, to look at enrolling in that uh, that seminar on the 15th. Okay, it's interesting to talk about the mandatory standards here in British Columbia of th- 3.6 hours of care per day. Is, are those standards typically consistently met in long-term care homes in our province? Yeah, sorry, it's 3.36 hours currently. 3.36, like, yes, okay. Yeah, the Seniors Advocate does a report every year, 
And, uh, you know, this past uh, couple of years, I think we've been up to that standard. It took a while and some investment on the part of the provincial government to bring up the number of care hours. Um, but it's um, it's a bit of a, you know, uh, cart before the horse situation in some ways, because unless uh, we have the staff to be able to provide that level of care, we can we can set a minimum, minimum standard. But if we can't hire enough people to provide that care, you know, it, it won't happen. So we need to have a two pronged approach. We need to invest in the workforce, as is recommended in these standards. And, uh, you know, this government, you've got to give them credit. They've done that through the Health Career Access Program that's trained, um, you know, hundreds of uh, health care aides around the province. They've increased the number of nursing seats available and also made it easier and less expensive for international nurses to enter the workforce. So that part is being worked on, which we're happy to see. But we need to invest in more care homes themselves. We need to modernize uh, the, the standards call for, you know, single resident rooms, which we have more of in B.C. than many other provinces. But still, we have a, a lot of older stock with four-person rooms that really don't meet the standard. Oh, okay, that's very interesting. Like, so a, a single occupancy room, that is, that's a recommended standard or that's the standard in B.C.? What is the status of that? Yeah, I mean, that's what everyone is working towards, and it's part of these standards. Uh, there may be times where you want two people in a room, uh, spouses, for instance, or friends who want to share uh, a space. But in the older homes, uh, particularly if you look at the health authority-owned and operated homes, uh, there are often uh, four people to a room. And we saw through the pandemic, of course, that it's very difficult uh, to prevent uh, the spread of infection when you've got four people sharing a room. So the standard now is uh, is to go to one person uh, per room. And that's what we've been doing over the last 20 years in the newer homes that have been built here in B.C., which is why we didn't have the situation we saw in Ontario and Quebec that has a much older uh, stock of long-term care homes where the infection spread like wildfire. Okay, so the standard for a single person per room, it, I guess, it is not being met right now then? Not in all homes, uh, that's for sure. Yeah. And um, and until we get there, of course, uh, uh, and that's going to require a lot, of, a lot of money. Now, the provincial government has said they're going to replace 2,200 um, uh, beds in the older owned and operated uh, and add 1,500 new uh, spaces. But even that, Mike, isn't nearly enough to meet the demand. I mean, we saw in the census that we have a rapidly aging population where the 80 plus part of our population is the fastest growing. And, um, you know, it's great to keep people in their home, whether it's in a retirement community or in their own single family home as long as possible with supports. But eventually, many of those folks are going to need 24 hour care. And we simply don't have enough space. And why this is so important is if we don't uh, provide that, then these folks are inappropriately in hospital in what we call alternative level of care beds, not getting the kind of treatment they deserve and and also taking up space that backs up the whole hospital system right back into the emergency room. So we absolutely need to address long-term care if we're going to help address the entire health care system. When we take a look at this report that was issued this week with these recommended standards of care, it talks about at least four hours, four hours of direct care daily. You mentioned that the standard right now in British Columbia, 3.36 hours. If we go to four hours, would that be 
a national standard that would be required to be enforced in British Columbia? Is that what is that what the Trudeau government's looking at here? No, they're not. It's not part of a standard. It, it really is. It says, and I quote here: "The average required hours of direct care for resident day will vary depending on the long-term care home's resident population, the complexity of their needs, and workforce composition." Evidence indicates that home residents require a minimum of 4.1 hours of direct care per day. So it's not saying you have to. They're saying the evidence is this is really where we should be aiming for. Um, And again, that's uh, 20-year-old research. So it really does vary depending on the complexity of the patient or the resident, I should say. Uh, But we know over time the average age of people going into long-term care is older and their needs are more complex which makes it obvious that we need more hours of care per day because it's not the same resident population that we saw 20 years ago. Do we currently have like a provincial patchwork of care standards across the country? Like we've got standards here in British Columbia. Sounds like other provinces have different standards, so it varies from province to province. Is that the situation we have in our country right now? That's exactly right. Now, don't forget, long-term care is not covered under the Canada Health Act, so... Uh, you know, Jagmeet Singh calling for the government to make, you know, to put legislation in place. Well, you heard the prime minister say that they recognize that health care is a provincial jurisdiction. And unless they open the Canada Health Act, um, they really can't demand that these standards be enforced. What they can do is provide carrots uh, through funding. So the Canada Health Transfer discussions that are taking place next week in Ottawa, that's a venue where they could say, look, if, if you can work towards these standards, we'll, we'll, we'll invest uh, X billion dollars more per year in long-term care. So it'll be interesting to see if that's the approach they take. My guest is Terry Lake, CEO, BC Care Providers Association. Phone me on the open line if you have a question or concern around long-term care. 604-280-9898 is the number to call. Star 9898 on your cell. Let's go to your calls. Vicki in Maple Ridge. Hi, Vicki. Go ahead. Yes, good morning. Um, I'm listening because uh, my father is in a care home in Victoria. And and some of the standards um, that were being uh, spoken that are supposed to be happening right now, um, the one that stood out to me was that was it 3.36 hours a day for care. Right. Yes. Um, I, I, I don't think that's happening at all. Like, I, I that's why I called in. I'm just like, Who's who's getting that much care? Like it, it boggles the mind. Like I've been there morning to night some days when I go over to visit, and um, I I'll be sitting with him all day. And other than the fact that they spend time getting him dressed in the morning, and then serving food at the meal times, th- there is no there's no other care for, like care for him. Like in terms of sitting with him, like helping him. Um, do you know what I mean? Like it's almost yeah, how, mu- like- how much, how many hours of care do you think he receives roughly a day? Maybe two, two to three. Yeah. And I don't know, like I'm just saying, because it's just what I see when I'm there. I don't know yeah. what I see, what's going on, but here's the concern I have is that the staff, let me just say the staff at this place are amazing. Mm-hmm. Absolutely amazing. The care and the love and attention he does get. However, they're always short staffed. That, that's what we, we hear. Like, he'll ring the bell, and he needs a lift to get onto the toilet. He rings the bell when he thinks he needs to go, and we've waited a half an hour for somebody to come and help him, and they'll just say, tell him to pee in his diaper because we can't get to him. 
Okay. And that just that just kills me. Like yeah. he's he's not in dementia. He's fully cognitive of what's going on. And you're going to tell him, you know what I mean? Like I just it's it's the num it's the, seems to be they're always always short staffed. I'm sure and it is, just uh, it just breaks my heart. Yeah, I'm, I have no doubt it does. Terry Lake, your thoughts on that? Well, uh, you can hear it in Vicky's voice. I mean, for caregivers, and let me just say that without caregivers, the system would would really collapse because. Uh, the help they provide uh, to loved ones is uh, absolutely necessary. And these standards recognize that. We need to look at caregivers as part of the system, not to rely on them to do the work, but, but recognize they want to be there helping. Uh, but what Vicky says is true, uh, that uh, many homes are short-staffed. So you've got not enough care aides um, to do all the work that's necessary. And especially during COVID, of course, Mike, uh, so many were off ill until we had a good vaccination program. And then, of course, through the winter, we've got the triple whammy of COVID, uh, flu, and respiratory syncytial virus. And while residents have been very well protected uh, by vaccines, you know, we have had staff off sick. And so people are continually working short. Now, as I mentioned before, a huge investment in training care aides uh, through the Health Career Access Program the government is funding and also investment in new nursing and trying to get international nurses into the, the workforce sooner. So hopefully what Vicky will see over the next six months to 12 months is that there won't be as much uh, of a situation where people are short-staffed. And she's right okay. about the people who work in those homes. They are amazing. Vicki, thank you for the call. Terry in Abbotsford. Hi, Terry, go ahead. I think that they're fixing the system backwards. What actually needs to happen is exactly what Adrian Dix said when he was talking to a group of us. He said that he cannot fix the facilities and the hospitals without first fixing home care. If you think people are getting the care that they need at home, you are wrong. If you think we have all the staffing, we have, we have nowhere near the staffing they have in care homes. So people that they have lifts, they have complex needs, they need two of us to do the job properly. And when you can't be there with your loved ones, we're the the ones that are there with your loved ones. But home support is overlooked by everyone. you got to fix home support. We send them to the hospital with sometimes life-threatening problems, and it's a revolving door. They have nowhere to put these people, so all they do is send them home. Okay, Terry, thank you for the call. Uh, Terry, Terry Lake, we just got one minute left here. So where, where does that yeah. home care fit in? Go ahead. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, you know, the, uh, the government recognizes that we need more investment in home care as well because people often would prefer to be uh, in their single-family home or have home care, home support in a retirement community, which is often easier because you can look after more people in a short amount of time. But without fixing, fixing that part of the system, Mike, and without f- fixing long-term care, the whole system will not uh, improve. So uh, Terry is absolutely right. We need to look at all parts of the system. Otherwise, um, you know, we'll be chasing our tail forever. So uh, more money for home care, more money for long-term care will help our entire health care system. Terry Lake, we, ha- we have more calls coming in here. Uh, sadly, we're out of time. So we'll just have to have you back and take some more calls because yeah. it's such an important issue. Thank you for coming on today. Thanks for having me, Mike. Appreciate it. Here we go now with traffic cameras in British Columbia. There are currently 140 traffic cameras in the province stationed at intersections. They will measure speed. So these are speed cameras. They can also catch you if you're running 
a red light. So you try to blast through a red light at one of these intersections. These cameras will automatically take your photo. You get a, a ticket. Same thing for speed. They can measure your speed as well. They run 24 hours a day. Here's the question now. Should municipalities be allowed to set up and operate their own cameras? Right now, it's just the province through ICBC and police that are running these cameras. There is a movement by some municipalities to allow them to set up their own traffic enforcement cameras in their communities. We talked about this earlier on the show. Why does the government run these cameras? Here's Mike Farnworth, the Solicitor General. It's about improving safety. And it's about in, you know, reducing the number of crashes, which means you're reducing the number of fatalities, you're reducing the number of, the number of injuries. Okay, we talked about this earlier in the week with Teal Phelps Bondaroff. He is a city councillor in Saanich. His motion in front of council there for municipalities to be given the authority to set up these cameras. It passed at their council meeting. It will now be forwarded to the Union of BC Municipalities. What do you think? I asked him, why do you want to do this? Here's what he told me. Traffic cameras are fantastic. They're a cost-effective way of increasing compliance and ensuring that we actually have monitoring on really important areas. I'm not saying we're going to get rid of roadside stops, but when it comes to things like speeding through playground zones and high-risk intersections, we want the ability to deploy cameras to increase compliance and ultimately make our roads safer. Okay, should this be allowed? Expand the number of these cameras, allow municipalities to operate them. Let's discuss with my guest, Chris Thompson from SenseBC. That's a watchdog group on these cameras in British Columbia. Very pleased to welcome Chris back. Chris, thanks a lot for coming on the show today. Anytime. Hey, Chris, first of all, let's talk about these cameras. Do you think these cameras are fair? Are they effective in slowing people down, saving lives? Well, I think those are two or three different things. Are they fair? Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting question. You can have uh, uh, a policy where everyone gets their own drone that follows them into traffic and auto-debits their bank account anytime they speed. That's really going to increase compliance, but I don't think anyone's really arguing for that. So the, the question of fairness really applies kind of on a camera-by-camera basis. Like, is this actually slowing people down and making the road safer? Because just because you're slowing some, someone down doesn't necessarily mean you're making the road safer. So uh, I can't... I don't want to sort of comment generally on whether or not these things are fair. I think when you get pulled over by a police officer, the police officer takes into account a lot more than the camera can, like road conditions, is there traffic, is this person, um, uh, you know, they can tell if they're under the influence. Like, I think if there's someone driving drunk, I'd want them to get a ticket one kilometer an hour over the limit. But for most of us, if we're doing 52 in a 50 zone, and you get some overzealous municipality that says, you know what, I want everyone obeying the law in my municipality to the letter, I don't think that's fair. So I don't know if we can really answer whether or not it's fair uh, until everything uh, shakes out with whatever these, the, the municipalities want to do. Okay, well, it's a very interesting point you raise because, of course, impaired driving, very serious. These RoboCop cameras are obviously not going to catch someone who's an impaired driver. They're only going to send you a ticket for running a red light or speeding. So when you look at the way these cameras operate right now, Chris, I mean, do you see them more as a sort of a revenue-generating tool for government? Depends on how they're implemented. I think the, the and again, it's on a camera-by-camera basis. I, <clears throat> excuse me, personally, I have a lot less of a problem with red light cameras than I do with speed cameras because there's, like, 
no one has to run a red light, but you do need some amount of speed to get from A to B, otherwise you're walking everywhere. So the, the speed cameras can't take into account, are you the only one on the road? Are you weaving through traffic? Like, again, these are things that a police officer can, can take into account that kind of an automated camera can't. And the problem I have with this policy of giving the municipalities individual discretion is that you're going to have this huge variation, potentially, in how laws are enforced. And some of the municipalities, if you have a small population base, they're going to think, hey, this might be a great way of raising revenue. Yeah. And, you know, they're going to set their speed limit to be 30 on the main section of the road when it was 50 before, and they'll set the limit oh. to be 31. And then yeah. they'll start just raking in cash, which has happened. To be fair, I don't know if it's happening in Canada, but it has happened in the States where there's, mm. you know, there was this chunk of freeway that didn't even go through a city. Like, the, the, you couldn't drive through the city on the freeway, but part of it was through the city where the, the, the municipality just sent their police officers and ticketed people like all day, every day to, to make a line item on their budget. So you run into that problem of inconsistent enforcement. And also, yeah. people always talk about, you know, cutting down on government waste. Again, there are 161 municipalities in B.C. Do you want 161 separate people learning how to install one of these, how to maintain one of these, how to fix them, uh, um, figuring out how to hook them into their systems? And all? Like, that's just, to me, that just seems ridiculous. Yeah, I think you raised some great points, especially because when you listen to the provincial government on the current network of 140 traffic enforcement cameras right now, they will say, well, we have very strict criteria about where these cameras can be placed. We're only placing them at, at dangerous intersections, and they say there's, there's a fairness mechanism there that it's not just about, you know, dinging people or setting up speed traps or raising money. They're trying to reduce deaths and injuries at, at these high accident zones. But if you give municipalities the authority to set this up, then I, I think it opens up a lot of temptation to set it up as a revenue generator. Now, I did ask this city councillor about this precise point, Chris. Like I said, wait a minute. What if you, you, you know, you guys want the authority to do this? This thing turns into a money grab. Like this is, this is what, this is what it's going to be. It's not about safety. It's just about raising cash. Here's what he had to say to me, and we'll get your thoughts. Teal Phelps okay. Bonderoff here. The, the question, of course, is you're only paying money if you're breaking the law. And the goal here is to increase compliance and to make our roads safer. And what you actually see in places that have installed traffic cameras is their road safety improves. So we want people following the law. And the goal is if people are paying, worried about paying money, then yeah. don't speed. Yeah, guys, okay. so if you don't want to get dinged in the wallet, well, don't break the law. What do you think of that argument? I would ask him to drive around with me for an hour and show me one person that's following the speed limit to the letter or to the number. Yeah. Like the limit's 30. Okay, you go 31. You're 30, 29, maybe 35. The limit's 50. Wherever the limit's 50 in Vancouver or anywhere, like I don't see anyone ever, ever, for the most part, obeying the speed limit to the number. Yeah. And when you make that argument, there, there's always this tension between, you can always say, like, sure, it's easy, just obey the law. Okay, well, then make the punishment a beating. Sure, <laughs> compliance will go up, but yeah. you're, you're not engaging people where they are. Driving is a mixture of physics and psychology. And if you get people on the road and force them to do things that, that are, you know, uh, conforming to a law that doesn't really make sense. Like, sure, there's absolutely some places where, uh, you know, doing 50 is dangerous through a school zone where there's a bunch of kids. That's absolutely sure. true. Yeah. But you're rigorously enforcing laws 
that are kind of just arbitrary lines. So you, you like you're telling me 49 is safe and 51 isn't. Yeah. Like that's that that just doesn't make well, sense to me. Couldn't you calibrate the cameras though to say, okay, we're not going to ding you for a ticket if you're going one click over the limit, but if you're going 20 over the limit, we're we're going to generate a ticket now. Sure, but that's not what the counselor said. The counselor yeah. said just don't speed. Don't speed, right. So okay. at any point, if you do 31, what the way I understood that counselor to say is, if at any point you do more than 30.51 kilometers an hour in a school zone, you owe us, I don't know, $183. Yeah. And all you have to do is just drive 25. That's all, all you got to do, man, is just follow the law. Yeah. Well, that may be easy to say, but there's 4 million people in B.C., give or take, I don't know how many drivers, and that's just not a rational way of enforcing traffic laws. Hey, Vancouver. I never in my wildest dreams thought I'd leave you and move to Edmonton, but I had this great job opportunity, so I came here in 2019. And so far, I've been pleasantly surprised. The people here are friendly and helpful. The food scene is amazing. There's plenty of stuff to do. And I bought my first house for just over 400000 which is kind of like a cherry on top. Alberta is calling. Learn more at albertaiscalling.ca. A message from the government of Alberta. Oh, yes, that government of Alberta luring British Columbians across the border. Come live over here. Those are pretty good ads. Seem to be working, too. Take a look at some of the numbers here. People who are leaving British Columbia, moving to Alberta. The number at a 20-year high. Wow, 2021-22. In that fiscal year. These numbers just out, 28,000 people moved from British Columbia to Alberta. This is the highest number in the past two decades. I wonder if those ads were working. I think for a lot of people, it's bottom line. This is a wallet-driven decision. You take a look at the cost of living in the city of Vancouver. Highest cost of living in Canada. We're the most expensive city in the country. Would you do it? Would you move to Alberta? Let's talk about it now with my guest, Chris Sims, Canadian Taxpayers Federation. She made the move. Chris, thanks for coming on. Hey, nice to hear your voice. Thanks for having me. It's nice to have you on. Okay, so you lived in British Columbia for, for many years, mm-hmm. and then you when did you move to Alberta? So um, we moved to Alberta in July this past summer. Well, I was born and raised in, Al- in British Columbia, so was my husband. Uh, we moved away in the early 2000s, worked on Parliament Hill, and then we moved back to BC in 2015, 2016. Uh, so we, we toughed it out there for a few years, uh, but it's just unaffordable. So we moved to Alberta this past summer. So, so this was an economic decision for you and your family then, was it? 100%. Yep. Really? Okay. Yep. Tell me why. Like, what? Tell me the, what were the numbers? How were the numbers working out for you here? Why is? Why did you think it'd be better to move? Well, it's just math. I mean, housing uh, for people who didn't get in, as they put it, in the housing market. You know, in the early to you know mid two thousands, there. Uh, for normal people, even two pe- two person working families, uh, owning a house is out of reach. 
I don't care if you're Gen Y, Gen Z, Gen X, it doesn't matter. Uh, most folks don't have sixty, eighty thousand dollars to plunk down onto a down payment and then be mortgage poor forever. Um, so, and no matter where you go in BC, uh, you know, we looked at Prince George, we looked at Cranbrook. You know, this is not just a Vancouver thing. So uh, we did the math. It took us about a year and a half or so to really crunch and figure out what to do. Uh, and fortunately, the Canadian Taxpayers Federation uh, had the same job that I'm doing now as I had in BC here in Alberta. So we made the move to Lethbridge. You can get a really nice house here in the mid 300,000s. Oh, oh yeah. Boy. Like, I'm not kidding. Like a four bedroom, three bathroom, double garage, heated with natural gas, corner lot, fenced. Like, I'm less than two hours from Calgary. Uh, I've got CTV and Global right here. We have an airport. They have a university. They have a trade school. And you get, like, full, you, you, we're paying less in mortgage yeah. than we were in a rent in hope. Oh, oh boy. So okay. It's just the, the top line. Top line is housing. Very close after that, uh, essentials like fuel. Right. Like, right now, I filled up the truck last night at $1.28 a liter. Mm. I don't know what they're paying in Vancouver right now, but the difference in taxes in just a per liter of gasoline in Calgary versus Vancouver is 43 cents a liter. And what's, what's the biggest difference? Well, there's no sales tax in Alberta, right? There's no sales tax. Yeah. And the provincial government completely eliminated the provincial excise tax. Cut it down by 13 cents a liter for both gasoline and diesel. And there's no TransLink tax. And there's no right. second carbon tax. So keep in mind, if you're filling up in Vancouver, you're paying for the provincial second carbon tax, which is 17 cents a liter. You're paying the provincial excise tax, which they're completely ignoring and refusing to drop at eight and a half. And you're paying the TransLink tax at 18 and a half cents per liter. If you're filling up a minivan in Vancouver, you're yeah. paying $32 more per fill up than you would in Calgary. Okay. Well, I can certainly see how this starts to add up, especially yeah. that co that cost of housing. My my goodness, that yeah. is that is dramatic. Like three hundred. What do you say? Three hundred. How much for a house? Three hundred thousands, man. Wow. They're wow. everywhere here. I know. Yeah. And like they're a little bit more in Calgary, but not yeah. much. And you'll get a newer one, like you know, with your fancy shake shingles and stuff, um, yeah. depending on what you're looking for. And it isn't, you know, it wasn't just for us. We started asking ourselves, hey, uh, our eldest is a teenager now. What's she going to do? How is she ever going to ever afford a house? How is she going to afford to insure a car? How is she going to afford to fill up that car? This is, this is a joke. We're leaving. So okay. that's why we left. Okay. So for a lot of people who are listening to this, Chris, and they're thinking, okay, uh, the math obviously sounds, sounds attractive. It's cheaper to live. But on the other side of the coin, you have to live in Alberta, right? So like, what, what's the temperature there today in Lethbridge? Minus eight. Yeah, well, that's what I'm talking about. Like, you can get, you know, it gets darn cold. We had an, a guest earlier on the show in, in another part of northern Alberta said it was minus 30, 37 degrees there today. Yeah, up in Fort Mac and stuff. But yeah. you know what? Um, You've probably got your heat on in your house, right? Right. Well, you just yeah. have your heat You'd on in your to. house, man. <laughs> um, That's just how it goes. Uh, I don't, like, I get, don't get me wrong. I love British Columbia. It's right. beautiful. But I'm not willing to pay for the government's ridiculously high cost of living and taxes in order yeah. to enjoy some beauty when I step outside on often cloudy, cold days like it is today. You're still heating your home. What's it like in the summertime? 
Oh, it was gorgeous here in the summer. So you know, keep in mind, we're far south. We're in Lethbridge. We're less than right. an hour from the American border. Yeah. And Lethbridge is neat because you, you get the Chinooks. It's really warm. It's almost, it's a lot like Kamloops. So you'll get the neat dry dunes and stuff in the river valleys. You can dig up dinosaur bones if you head outside. Uh, there's even tiny little uh, cacti, which are native to this area. So very similar to, uh, to Kamloops in, the, in, in its climate. What about those giant mosquitoes in the, in the summertime, or is that just winter peg? Uh, that's just winter peg, my friend. Oh, okay. <laughs> anyway, no... I, actually, I actually noticed very few bugs here. And they also keep in mind, I get a kick out of folks saying, oh, it's cold. Well, yeah. it's cold outside the lower mainland too, man. Well, like true. if you're living in Quinell or Prince George or somewhere, you know, it gets cold in British Columbia as well. And again, it depends on what you want. Like, hey, man, if you've already bought your house and you're already well into your mortgage and you can afford it, you know, good for you. That's great. You can afford to stay in B.C. most likely. Uh, But for for those who didn't get in when it was more reasonable, sure wasn't cheap, but more reasonable, um, it's it's out of it's priced out of the market. Like my for example, I've got I've got a cousin. He's he's a mechanic. He's a licensed tradesman. And his wife works in a pharmacy, two person working income, work their butts off, have since forever. There's no way they would have been able to afford a house unless one of their parents had passed away. They sold the house. They put every cent of that house sale money into a new mortgage, and they all had to move in together. And they spent $990,000 on a house in hope. Okay, so unless about- you're willing to make a big lifestyle change like that for, right. new, for new purchases, um, it's out of reach for a lot of people in British okay. Columbia. How about some of the other factors? I guess you yeah. can't really put a, a number, like a price tag, on. Like, are are the are the people friendly? Like, what are the what are the entertainment options there? I mean, mm. you know, here in, in Vancouver, you got like world class cuisine and restaurants and enter, entertainment. Like, what's it like yep. in, in Lethbridge? Great question. So I guess that depends on your preferences, right? So I I was I'm very rural Western Canadian. So if I'm not getting the best sushi in the world, which Vancouver has, every Friday, I'm still okay. Because I like Alberta beef. Uh, A lot of my family (laughs) run the bucking stock for the Calgary Stampede. They live up near Stettler here in Alberta. So I was already, I grew up horsey, right? Uh, My father-in-law is a heavy-duty mechanic. So we fit well with the Alberta culture. Um, But even if you're not completely into that, like I said, there's a great theater and arts program here in Lethbridge. You go to Calgary. I mean, that's a world-class city. It has every bit of, you know, um, interesting food you could want. And you can still, you've still got your Ikea up there. You've still got all your, you know, cool shopping districts. They've still, you know, cool old bookstores that I love to haunt. Like, it's, it's, a, <laughs> it's a Canadian province. Um, you don't have uh, mountain river streams running past your house unless you're living right in the Rockies, like Banff yeah. or something. But most people don't, don't live there unless you're in the arts community. Um, yeah, I mean, I would just recommend people visit. If they're thinking about making the move, just visit in in the summer and take a look around. Uh, also, we don't have, like I said, we don't have a PST here, and yeah. I, I wanted to touch on that quickly because that saves you. Like for example, I did the math, and through the holiday shopping season, even if only you know half of Albertans participated in it, uh, they, we still saved tens of millions of dollars. On average, it was about eighty bucks you're saving for the holiday shopping season just in the PST, and in and in British Columbia. They're such vicious bloodsuckers at the PST that they will charge you for a used truck 
or yeah. clothing from a thrift store or, you know, t- anything brand new, like uh, Internet service pr- subscriptions, anything. You've got PST on nearly everything in British Columbia, which is another reason why it's much less affordable. Okay. They don't have one here. Lots of calls about moving to Alberta. Let's get right at it here. Stuart in New West. Hi, Stuart. Go ahead. Oh, hi there. Uh, yeah, really good analysis, really good summary of some real numbers. Uh, just curious if you have any idea what a typical couple or a typical family of four, say in BC, you know, would spend in a year on that PST. Have you added it up? How much does a typical person, family spend? Well, that's a great question. It depends, again, it all depends on what you're buying. But like you said, a typical family of four. Uh, I did the math here just just per person, just for holiday shopping, and it was 80 bucks a person, right? So that's 16 plus, that's, it's, you know, $320 if you did times four. Just for Christmas. That's just for holidays. So yeah, American okay. Thanksgiving to New Year's, not including okay. booze, okay? So that's... 320 bucks, right? And then start doing that math. And then you start thinking, let's say, here, here's a good example. The the BC government under Gordon Campbell in the early 2000s was so bloodthirsty for their PST, they got wise to the fact that smart BC shoppers were saving their big purchases for things like washers and dryers and stuff for when they came over here for their summer trip. To Alberta. They'd They'd go to Alberta, yeah. Yeah. Say, wait till you head over to Alberta, and then they were bringing it back. The BC government went after big box stores like Brick, Costco, etc., and said, hey, Take pictures of the driver's license plates and email them to us, and then uh, send us your receipts because we're going to nail them with an import of PST when they come home. They had they fought them in court. Uh, I remember. Crazy, yeah. I I remember it very well. Carolyn in Cowichan. Hi, Carolyn. Go ahead. Hey, so I lived in Alberta from '95 to '04. So my experience of that was that. Government services still have to be provided, whether it's PST or whatever. And my experience was every time you went to uh, get any kind of government service, uh, driver's license, for example, the user fees. So it's a tax by any other name. But every time you go to do something that's a government service, Big user fees. Oh, so I mean, things have to be paid for somehow. Now, I don't know what the situation is there now. Perhaps your guests can comment. But, uh, you know, things cost what they cost. Now, maybe yeah. you're not paying for it in at the gas pump or wherever. But, you know, and then Alberta's got a whole heck of a lot of sprawl and not a lot very good uh, public transit and so forth. So, I mean, things, you know, mm. there's trade-offs. People are making choices, right? So uh, those are things to think about as well. Thank you, Carolyn. Chris? Uh, just speaking personally, because I haven't done, like, big data dive on it, uh, we paid about the same or less to get our driver's licenses switched over and get our health cards and that sort of thing here. And it was interesting. You actually got your driver's license at a, at a private uh, provider, even though it's government-issued ID. Ken in Coquitlam. Hi, Ken. Go ahead. Um, you're wrong there. Am I on? Hello? Yes, Hi there. I can hear you. Hi, okay. I lived in Edmonton back in 210, and I was there for five years. I had to replace two cars from hail damage. Mm. I had my uh, daughter got Lyme disease. I will never move there. I went to Manitoba, bought a place for 300000 last year, sold my place up here for 2.5 mil, and uh, I've wow. gone west. Thank you, Ken. Okay. 
uh, hail damage and Lyme disease. Chris, you got a minute left. <laughs> well, again, there's uh, ups and downs to everywhere. Uh, uh, you can still get, you know, flooding damage or forest fire damage to your vehicle if you're parked in British I Columbia. Got hey, Chris, I got a, I got an email from a listener who said her, she lived in Alberta. Her daughter went into a lake and got leeches all over her body in Alberta. Leeches exist in B.C. too. Okay. Often they're in government. Are you, are uh-huh. you sure? Sorry, I couldn't help it. <laughs> I'm just saying there's nowhere's perfect. And we were yeah. fighting for, you know, uh, low taxes, less waste and accountable government here, too. As always, I just yeah. wanted to share our own family's personal experience uh, for folks who uh, are thinking about making the move. OK, well, I think you, you, you certainly made a compelling case. Thank you for coming on, Chris. talk about the massive cyber attack at Okanagan College now. The cyber crime group Vice Society claimed responsibility for this. They stole student passwords, credit card numbers, passport photos, social insurance numbers, all stolen in this attack. The group demanded a ransom to destroy the stolen information. The college refused to pay the ransom. The hackers then posted the information on the dark web. Students at Okanagan College not happy about it. Have a listen. We pay a lot of money to be here and they should be protecting our information. I was fairly worried about probably the SIN numbers was the number one thing because a lot can be done with SIN numbers. I'm worried for a lot of the international students who, um, you know, they have to submit, I, I think they have to submit stuff for their passport. So if that gets out, that's going to be really hard to deal with. I feel like no matter what, like companies that are meant to protect us will protect us and you know if our information gets leaked it's it's it is what it is but it's unfortunate that it's come to this they shouldn't have let this happen in the first place let's discuss now with my guest claudio popa certified cybersecurity expert and ceo of data risk canada he's the author of the canadian cyber fraud handbook claudio thank you for coming on thanks for having me on the show okay claudio another brazen cyber attack on a public institution in Canada. Once again, a demand for ransom to return stolen information. First of all, let's talk about this particular cyber gang here that's claimed responsibility for this. Vice Society. Who are these people? Well, these people are like many other cyber extortionists are a group of individuals who specialize in the education sector. Others specialize in energy, others uh, governments and banks and so on, healthcare. Um, Once you know how to break into a number of these organizations, you recognize the same vulnerabilities throughout the same sector. So they simply leverage their skills in a broad way. And we've seen that over the past year where you know in the u.s um educational institutions have have paid over three and a half billion dollars in in ransoms and and so it pays to be able to to leverage your existing skill set okay once again in this case we have a demand for ransom here and interestingly okanagan college here refusing to pay the ransom what do you think of that decision Well, I think um, we need a little bit more transparency. Generally speaking, we're no longer in the Stone Age when it comes to extortion. Uh, The insurance policy that an organization has should be able to cover a ransom. In other words, 
the first thing that happens when you see the pop-up on your screen and you're a victim organization is you call your insurance company. They put you together they, uh, with, a, uh, with a negotiation firm that is also able to make those payments. They negotiate the lowest price possible. The money is paid usually in some cryptocurrency and you regain access to both the systems and you get some kind of a guarantee that the data is deleted on their, uh, on their side. Naturally, it's not a real guarantee because you have no control of it, but it's the way that their business model works. Yeah, so you think they should have paid a ransom then? Well, this is the most sensitive type of information. We're talking about photos of passports, social security numbers, credit card numbers, and passwords. Why would anyone have access to passwords unless they were being stored in unencrypted fashion? So if, in fact, this is an organization that had lax security, the least they could do in order to protect the, the, uh, the students uh, is to, to pay the ransom and do the best they can to reduce the risk that this information will lead to um, identity fraud, to uh, phishing, to um, uh, victimization or further victimization of all those individuals. So that's, uh, you know, that's the process today. Speaking of lack of transparency, we heard a lot of complaints from students at Okanagan College saying they're not getting a lot of answers to their concerns here. And one of the big unanswered questions here in my mind is how much ransom was demanded by this group? I mean, we don't know. Typically, how much do they ask for when they manage to steal information? How much, how much money do they want to release it? Well, you know what? Typically, um, ransoms in the educational sector are not as high as in other sectors like the uh, financial services, for example, or banking, where you see them asking for one, two, three million dollars. Um, in the case of um, school in Texas, for example, in the past month or so, um, they simply asked for $547,000 uh, in ransom to prevent the sensitive data from, from being exposed. So it's not a huge amount. Uh, naturally, it provides no guarantee except for the school's responsibility to do exactly everything they can <laughs> to protect right. the personal information that has already been compromised due to uh, inadequate security. Right. The college in this case has said that they didn't want to pay the ransom. They didn't even get into negotiations with it because, like you just pointed out, they said that we have no guarantee that the information would be destroyed or that it would be released on the the dark dark web anyway. So they didn't want to go there. But can you like I can sort of understand that to a degree. It, 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 paying the ransom, isn't that like negotiating with terrorists? No, oh, absolutely. Uh, but if you have a chance to save the victims versus just giving up and saying, well, you know what, the victims are done. Uh, we just need to cut our losses. We'll move on and try not to have any more victims in the future. Uh, I think we should try to save the victims that are still being uh, that are about to be victimized further. So um, it was it was not the the response that I would have expected and certainly not what I would have advised the college to uh, to do. 
Speaking to cybersecurity expert Claudio Popa about the cyber attack at Okanagan College, you mentioned some of the sensitive information that has been stolen here. We're talking 850 gigabytes of student data, uh, passwords, photos of passports, social security, social insurance numbers, uh, credit card numbers. What kind of jeopardy are these kids in now? All these students have had their personal information stolen here, and apparently it's been published on the dark web. What could happen to these kids now? With What could be done with this information if it gets into the wrong hands now? Well, it's, it's fairly serious, and that's why I'm saying uh, the college should have done absolutely everything possible, uh, negotiated uh, just to just to suppress all this information, because as we all know, passwords are critical. Oh. Those passwords should have been encrypted. If they weren't encrypted, then that's obviously the fault of the institution. And of course, people reuse passwords everywhere. So the first thing that criminals will do is try to use these passwords to try to log into other websites, into email, into banking sites, into a variety of social media and other accounts in an effort to impersonate uh, the victims, the students, and potentially gain access to their personal networks, their families, their friends, etc. So it's a serious thing. Claudia, last question for you. Once again, we see a public institution in Canada hacked by these these cyber gangs. We've had these this ransomware threat has been around for years. Experts like yourself have been sounding the alarm bells on this for years. Do we still have a, a lot of vulnerability in Canadian colleges, universities and other public institutions of these kind of attacks? It seems like, you know, the, the, the bad guys are winning here. The bad guys are continuing to win. They are using the same techniques everywhere. As I said, they've developed a certain skill set. They know what vulnerabilities to look for. They can see that many uh, educational institutions lack the security preparedness, the readiness, the skills, the tools, the controls to protect students. And so if, if, uh, if access is granted to all that student data, then they, the criminals help themselves to it and they, they try to, uh, to force organizations to pay in this manner. Uh, a big reminder to organizations to have cyber liability insurance in place because it can make things so much smoother. And in many cases, you're able to avert a catastrophic event uh, like we see here. Claudio, thank you for coming on with your thoughts and expertise on it. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Mike Smith Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop. Tune into the show live from 9 to noon on 980 CKNW. Want to reach out to me personally with a question or comment? Send me an email, mike at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.